The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I encourage you if you brought a Bible this morning to open up to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 5 looking at verses 1 through 12. But before we read verses 1 through 12, I want us to cheat a little bit. I want us to go ahead to verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 John. Because here John sort of gives us his purpose statement for writing the letter, and it really informs how we understand our text today. Here's what he says in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And for those of you that have been a part of this series, we we have seen that John has been chiefly concerned with bringing encouragement and and assurance and confidence to his believing audience. Now, as we said before, the context of this letter is that there was a heresy that had been dividing the church. And people who were believing a false gospel had led the church and set up shop next door. And John is writing to these churches, most likely in Ephesus, to tell them, no, 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 hold on to the real Jesus, not the false Jesus. And so what he's been doing for five chapters is speaking encouragement and courage and assurance into the lives of his audience to say, hey, listen, you know the real Jesus. Hold on to the real Jesus that you may have life. And that informs what we read here in the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 5. This this summary statement in verse 13, I kind of see the first 12 verses of chapter 5 as kind of a summary of what we've learned thus far in the first four chapters of the letter. Would you read with me verses 1 through 12? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, so thankful for for the privilege you give us of gathering in the open air to sit under the preached word, to lift our voices and sing worship to you without any fear of persecution. God, thank you for the freedom that we enjoy to worship publicly, to worship corporately, to come before you as the body of Christ. We pray today, God, as we open your word, God, as we, as we read your very word, God, that you would open our hearts and minds, you would soften us, God, that you would move among us, God, that we would hear what it is you want to speak to us. 
through your word preached, God. May we respond in obedience, God. If there needs to be conviction of sin, God, I ask today by the power of your spirit, you would bring conviction of sin. God, if there needs to be joyful assurance of our salvation today, God, I pray that you would bring joyful assurance of our salvation today. God, speak to us. Meet us in this place. Have your way with us. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, I have a thing that I do, and I probably have shared this in the past, that I do in the midst of kind of life's most precious moments, those great moments that, that we have in life. You're watching a sunset, and it's beautiful. You're hiking with someone you love, and it's joyous. You're, you're, you're sightseeing, and the sights just take your breath away. Or it's just one of those moments when you're enjoying time with your family, and everything in the world feels right. You're swimming in a pool, whatever it may be, those things you love to do. I have this thing I do with my family. That when we're in that moment, I'll look to my, my kids or my wife, and I'll say, you know what this is? And they'll say, this is living, Dad. That's right, this is living. You know what we're doing? We're living, that's right. We're living right now, this is living. I've been saying that for years. I'm so thankful for those blessed moments. But you know what? In the, in the background of every blessed moment, maybe you've experienced this as well, maybe you haven't, but in the background of every blessed moment, there's this ache, in me at least, that recognizes that these moments are fleeting. Every joyful greeting, uh, th- there's an ache of knowing that a goodbye is around the corner. Every vibrant rainbow that stretches across the sky comes with the realization that this moment is fleeting and you have a few moments to appreciate the beauty of the rainbow. Every joyous childhood memory uh, has a a tinge of sadness knowing that that innocence has been lost. I mean, I think about right now uh, as a grandfather, as I watch my grandson Wilson play, I love watching the wonder, the innocent wonder in his eyes and in his life. I love watching when he, when he first started to engage faces and he began to smile and giggle and sit up and clap and he spoke his first words, he, he took his first steps and there's such joy in being a part of this little man who's, who's experiencing his world and yet around the corner from that joy, for me at least, maybe I'm a pessimist or a realist, I don't know, there's this dull ache of knowing that the innocence of a child one day will be gone for my grandson. It makes me sad. It makes me sad to know that, that one day we won't be able to shield him from the reality of this world, that he'll be confronted with the brokenness that is planet Earth. And so, as good as these moments can be, for me personally, there tends to be a small ache in my soul. Can you identify with that? Do you experience that? I, I, in the past, I've called that the background noise of life. No matter how hard we try... No matter how much fun we have, no matter how much we try to numb or dull that ache when the lights go off and we're laying there with just our thoughts, no matter how blessed the day has been, on some level, whether conscious or not, there's this background hum of life that just things, there's something that's not right. There's an angst. Maybe it's the reality of living in a fallen world as foreigners and sojourners. Maybe we're supposed to feel this way. Maybe we're not supposed to be too comfortable because this isn't our ultimate home. Maybe those little moments of blessing and joy are little droplets that God gives us of what glory will be like one day. Because one day we'll be out of this world and we'll be in the presence of the living God. And as, as John says in Revelation 21, that God will wipe every tear from our eye and he'll make all things new. And there no longer will be ache or angst or sorrow or the background noise of life. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe those little moments of blessing and joy are conditioning our palate for what John talks about in our text today. Eternal life. 
the life that God has for us, abundant life fully realized. John has been speaking about eternal life from the beginning of this letter. He's mentioned it six times in our letter. It's mentioned 18 times in the Gospel of John. These are the two books that mention eternal life more than any other. John, in his literature, loves to talk about eternal life. If you look at the first three verses of the book of John, how he introduces us in this letter... John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, talking about Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, again, talking about Jesus, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John has been talking about eternal life in this letter, and he talks about eternal life today. When you and I think about living... When we feel like looking to the left or looking to the right and saying, you, you, know, you know what this is? Is our vision of living too small? Is our vision of life too small? As Christians, have we, have we lowered our eyes and have we got caught in the trap of thinking about life only in the number of years that we exist on this side of the grave? Have we forgotten to view life as eternal? Because all of us have been created as eternal beings. So the question then becomes, what is living? What is living? And how do we find life? Our text takes us there today. Look with me again at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. The first thing we see in our text is a faith that overcomes. We see a faith that overcomes in verses 1 through 5. Look with me here at verses 4 and 5. Notice the word overcome and the language of overcoming in these two verses. John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is a unique word. It's a word that John loves to use in the Scriptures. And it comes alongside many other words that we read in the Scriptures that describe the people of God. There's like 40 words in the New Testament that describe the people of God. We're called believers and Christians and children of God and children of light and children of promise. In the New Testament, children of God are called sons of the kingdom, friends of Jesus Christ, brethren, sheep, saints, holy ones, soldiers, Witnesses, stewards, fellow citizens, lights of the world, the elect, the chosen, the called, ambassadors of Christ. People who, who are of the family of God in the New Testament are called heirs and, and branches in the vine, members of the body of Christ, living stones, the beloved of God, followers of Christ, sons of Abraham, disciples, servants of Christ, the godly, the people of God, a royal priesthood, the salt of the earth, Vessels of honor, I'll go on. The righteous, aliens and strangers, members of God's household. Each of those names that the New Testament gives us provides a nuanced view of what it means for you and me to be in the family of God, to be born again, to be saved by God, to be, to be redeemed, to be a believer. And as we look at each of those 40 names, it's like a multifaceted gemstone intricately cut. Each angle as we twist it in the sun provides a new nuance of what it means to be in the family of God. It reveals something of the character and the blessings and the privileges of believers. And then here in our passage, we have a whole new word, overcomer. For those of us that are in Christ, we are overcomers, the, the text says. This title speaks to this amazing reality that those who are in Christ are, are conquerors. We are, we are victors. We are winners in Christ. That Greek word that's translated overcome is the word nikao. 
I'm not a Greek expert, but I think that's how it's pronounced. It simply means to conquer or subdue, to overcome, to prevail, to get the victory. And of the 28 times this word, this word for overcome is used in the New Testament, 24 times John uses it. And what he's simply saying is those of us that have faith in Christ, we have a faith that overcomes. Jesus spoke about this overcoming as he was talking to the disciples on his final night in the upper room. In John chapter 16, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to happen when he's arrested and everybody flees, Jesus says in John 16, verses 32 and 33, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus goes on to say, I have said these things to you, that in me... You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Jesus has overcome the world. That word overcome, it's, it's a popular word in our culture, right? We, we see it being used of sports figures and politicians and self-help gurus, and it's even infiltrated Christian lingo, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. But as we think about this word overcome, we have to first recognize that this overcoming that John is talking about has nothing to do with our ability to reach deep within and self-will the strength to overcome. This, this overcome that we're reading about here in 1 John chapter 5 is an overcoming that is rooted entirely outside of self. John's not a, a head basketball coach giving some self-help talk to Christians. He's not pumping up Christians, telling them to have a stiff, upper lip, a stiff upper lip and just go for it and overcome. No, no. He's saying that a faith that overcomes is faith in the overcomer. That's what John is saying. A faith that overcomes is rooted in Jesus Christ, the overcomer. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Those who are born of God are overcomers. Three times we see the word overcome. One time we see the word victory in these two verses. And if you just think about other language and other uh, epistles in the New Testament, think of what Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 8. He, he says that in Jesus we who are believers ha are invincible, we're unconquerable. Paul writes that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A faith that overcomes has faith in the overcomer. Jesus is the overcomer. He's overcome the world. And so what does it mean when he says the world? What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world and in Jesus you and I have overcome the world? What exactly does this passage mean when it speaks of the world? One scholar kind of helped me think about this this week. Here's what one guy writes. He says, the, the world is the invisible spiritual system of evil, which is hostile to God and is ruled by Satan. The citizens of the world are, are dominated by carnal ambition, pride, greed, and selfishness and pleasure, all of which constitute the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which John spoke about in chapter 2 of this letter. And as we think about Satan... He's described in the scriptures as being the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. But Jesus is greater. Remember what Jesus said. He said, uh, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so for you and I as we gather here today, if you're in Christ, if you've confessed faith in Jesus, if you're born again, 
because of the work of Christ, you can know that in your life, Satan is already defeated. As we go back to Genesis chapter 3, as, as God was speaking a curse over Satan in the garden, he, he told Satan that the seed of Eve would crush his head. Jesus came and crushed the head of the serpent. He has defeated Satan, which means for those of us that are born again, those of us that are, are overcomers, we're part of the family of God, Satan has been rendered powerless. Imagine a snake in a jar, a ferocious, terrifying, venomous snake sealed tightly in a jar. He's terrifying to look at, makes a lot of noise, can rattle that tail, cannot touch you. Satan is like a snake in a jar. Howard Marshall, a, a scholar in 1 John, wrote this, and I thought this is it's a rather lengthy quote, but I want to read what he said ab- about this concept. Listen to this. To the natural man, the power of evil appears uncontrollable. And to the weak Christian, the force of temptation appears irresistible. It requires a firm belief in Jesus to enable us to dismiss this appearance of irresistible, uncontrollable evil as being merely appearance, a snake in a jar. Nor is such faith a means of escape from conflict. On the contrary, it is right in the middle of evil's display of power that the believer is able to call its bluff and proclaim the superior might of Jesus Christ. Such faith is far from being wish fulfillment or sheer illusion. On the contrary, it rests foursquare on the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated death, and anybody who can defeat death can defeat anything. Amen? So a faith that overcomes is a faith that is rooted in the overcomer. That's not all that John talks about here. He talks about how a faith that overcomes also has love for God and others. Look at verse 1, the second half of verse 1. He says, Everyone... Who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of God. How many times in this series have we heard about our command to love the brethren, to love one another? It has been laced throughout this letter. And with each new chapter, with each new mentioning and call to worship or to to love one another, it's like John is just adding to his argument, making a bigger and broader perspective of what it means to love. An an overcomer loves both the Father and, and the children who are born of him, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in typical John fashion, he has just heaped this on us. You can read about love of one another, the command to love, in virtually every chapter in this book. There's multiple examples of it. But it's not simply an emotional love. It's, it's not a sappy uh, sentimentalism that John is talking about. This is a, a love that, first and foremost, is a vertical love that we're called to. It's a vertical love that's God-directed. It's a love that desires to honor God, that desires to please God and obey God. And it's a love that, that seeks to, to love God with all, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, this, this love that, God, that John calls us to is a horizontal love. It's an others-focused love. It's a self-giving, self-sacrificing love that seeks to meet the needs of others. It places priority on the other above self. The kind of love that John calls us to over and over again in this book is a, is a love that's lived out within the body of Christ. It's the love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I know this is a verse that's often read at weddings, but the context of 1 Corinthians is that John is writing to, to the church. And the kind of love that we're supposed to experience organically within the body of Christ is what John writes about, or rather what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what we're called to. The love of God and the love of God's children are yoked. They're linked. It's impossible to love God without loving God's children. It's impossible to love God's children without loving God. They're twin priorities that go together. They form the distinctive marker upon those who are born again. And so we see this faith that overcomes. It has faith in the overcomer. It has, it has love for God and others. And, and lastly, there's that other thing that John has hit on so many times. The faith that overcomes, lastly, walks in obedience to God and his word. John talks about the obedience to, to the commands. By this we know, in verse 2, by this we know the love, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And so the person who has faith in Jesus Christ, the overcomer, and who has love for God and others, this person is going to view the commandments of God not as burdensome, but as a blessing. They desire deeply to obey commands, to keep God's commands as an act of love. It's a treasure. And they do so because it's not burdensome. I can think, I can think of so many times I have sat down with people in my life as a pastor and even just in my family, and they, they want to know about this Jesus that I proclaim, and I'll, and I'll walk people through the gospel. I can think of one very specific instance where this happened in my family seven and a half years ago. I, I, I walked my, my, my family member through the gospel, detail by detail. I invited this person to respond to Jesus, and she said, I, I just don't want to live the moral code. And I'm like, you, you have it backwards. It's not about living a moral code that we may come to Jesus. It's about being born again, being washed, being, being saved, being made from death to life. And when God overwhelms you and, and, and invades your life, he's going to do, do the work of, of, of removing the burdensome nature of these commandments. It's going to be an act of worship. I think of the words of Jesus. When he talked about those who are weary and heavy laden and they're tired, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We're not called to self-will obedience apart from the supernatural work of God in our lives. We're to look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we give him our heavy laden hearts, our heavy yokes, our tired and weary souls, and he, and he gives us in exchange his rest and his easy yoke. And he makes our, our way easy and our burden light. It doesn't call us to a moralism, but we're called to the person of Jesus Christ. So that those who love God love to obey his commandments. They desire deeply to honor God as an act of worship. They do so out of joy and and loving adoration, not so out of a dread and joyless duty. So, the first thing we see is that the faith overcomes. Let's skip ahead to verses 6 through 10 quick. We see faith here in, in God's testimony. This is the second thing we see in our text. We see faith in God's testimony. All of this ultimately is pointing to this question of life. What is living? What is life? All of this is preparing us for that. And so, so, so the pathway to, to, to life as God would intend it is faith in the testimony of God concerning his son. Look at the repetition of the word testify or testimony in these few verses, beginning in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify 
the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Verse 11 mentions testimony also. The key to understanding this little section of text is in this word testify. It occurs all over the the Bible, 175 times. It's the Greek word, I'm going to try to pronounce this word, martureu. And it just simply means remembering something and then testifying concerning it. Whether this is in a court of law or just bringing something back to recollection of which you have firsthand knowledge. Some have even speculated that the word martyr has its root in this word uh, martyreu. Because those who testified to Jesus in the first few centuries were put to death. They were martyred for their faith. But the picture here is not of a human testimony. It's of God testifying on behalf of his son. This is God testifying concerning Jesus. See, we're not being asked here, and John has been guarding against this the whole time he's been writing this letter. We're not being asked to believe in in Jesus as concocted by human minds and human words. This is not a work of fiction that we're called to respond to. This is not a fanciful fantasy or a myth or a a made-up story. What John is telling us is the truth of Jesus Christ has been testified by God himself. We see God's testimony concerning the three. Now, this language is so confusing. The blood, the water, the spirit. This is such confusing language. What are these three? Why the blood? Why the water? Why the spirit? Well, let me try to provide just real quick clarity so we can understand why John said this. The water refers to the waters of baptism. It's referring to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. Keep that in your mind. The blood is referring to the death of Jesus on the cross at the end of his earthly ministry. And the Spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit, which bears witness to the truth of all of these things. In fact, as we look at the Spirit's activity in the ministry of Jesus, we see the the, the Spirit of of God um, working in in the conception of, of Jesus, in his baptism, in his temptation, even in his resurrection. But this can be a confusing section of Scripture. And I think as I was reading it, I was like, what does this mean? Like, what, why did John write this? Why, why is he referring to blood and water? Why is this so confusing? But what we have to do, though, is, is Bible readers, kind of the first rule of thumb as, as Bible readers is that we are to, to look at context, right? And so, so God, the divine author, inspired John, the human author, to write this letter to an audience, an original human audience. And so the first job that we have to do as Bible readers is to understand that context, What was God saying through John to them then? What was their context when they were receiving this letter from John? And I know we've detailed this in the series, that that there's a horrific heresy that was dividing the church. John was writing to refute the heresy and to solidify the church that they might be assured that they're holding on to the real Jesus, the one whom John himself had seen and touched and heard. But there was a guy at this time in the first century named Serenthus, who was advancing a false gospel. Serinthus believed that the baptism of Jesus happened. He accepted that, but Serinthus did not accept the death of Jesus. This, this false teaching called uh, Serinthianism uh, basically believed that Jesus the man and the Christ were two separate beings, which is a heresy and it's a false. It's false. 
the Serinthus view of Jesus was that he came into being the natural way. No virgin birth. Joseph and Mary were his earthly parents. Uh, and they believed that, that at, at the time of Jesus' baptism, the Christ descended on Jesus for a short season and then left him before his crucifixion. That's the, 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 the gist of this heresy. That was, that was tearing the church apart. They denied that Jesus was the eternally existing second person of the Trinity. They thought that Jesus had an origin or a beginning, which is not true. Here, in our text, John rightly holds up the truth that Jesus has always been the Christ. He does, he does so by looking at the testimony of water and blood and spirit. And what John says, if you even go back to John's gospel, in the first verse of, of the gospel of John, he sets us straight. John writes that in the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John very clearly refutes this false teaching by Serenthus. In other words, Jesus did not begin when he was born, but rather he is the eternally existing one. Jesus is the anointed one. He's God's chosen redeemer. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He was not born or created. He simply chose to come into the world when he chose to come into the world. And this is the reason why John is going through the detail of refuting these specific particulars of the false teaching that was tearing apart the church. He's repudiating the false teachers of the day. He's saying Jesus is not who the heretics claim him to be. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. John is saying, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him. I know who Jesus was. You don't. Cling to Jesus. And the waters mark the baptism of Jesus beginning his ministry. And do you remember what, what, what happened at the baptism of Jesus? Do you remember that God spoke from heaven audibly at the baptism of Jesus? There was an audible testimony of God at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3, 17. So the waters of his baptism, at the waters of his baptism, God testifies concerning Jesus. But what about the death, the blood of Jesus? If the blood represents the death of Jesus, what was at the death where the father was giving testimony? Well, if you read the gospel accounts, the father gave striking testimony about Jesus at his death. God caused darkness to fall upon the land. Do you remember that in Matthew 27? Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This darkness, it symbolized the, the Father forsaking the Son. Jesus, as he was dying in your place and my place, he became the sin-bearing sacrifice. Though he knew no sin, he became sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And the darkness that spread over the land, the supernatural activity of God, testified to the atoning work of Jesus. And in the midst of his God forsakenness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Also at the moment of Jesus' death, the Father testified when he caused the curtain to be torn in the temple. Matthew 27, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the radical, amazing, mind-blowing truth that the, sinless, the sinlessness and the sinless sacrifice of Jesus and the atoning work that washes us clean of our sins has made the holy of holies now accessible. God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus. We can enter into the presence of God now because of the work that Jesus did. God testifies to that here at the blood, at the death of Jesus. We also see this earthquake that the Father caused to happen at the death of Jesus. It's one of the most bizarre uh, passages in Scripture Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53. The earth shook when Jesus died. The rocks were split. 
The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after this resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Dead people were raised to life at the crucifixion of Jesus. God did this to testify that Jesus is the Christ. I read this week that the appearance of these resurrected people in bodily form testified to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of those who are asleep, as John puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. So think about this. So incredible and supernatural and miraculous was God's testimony that this battle-hardened pagan Roman soldier who helped to kill Jesus as he watched all of this unfold. He's the first to confess Jesus as the Christ. Truly, this man was the Son of God. So we see the Father testifying to Jesus at his water baptism, the blood of his death, and now the Spirit testifies to the truthfulness of it all. Look at verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. In other words, what the Spirit says can be trusted. The Spirit-inspired Scripture, the Spirit speaks truth. The Spirit bears testimony that these things are true. And so all of this is just John wants you and me to, to come to terms with Jesus. At the end of the day, he wants us to see Jesus for who he really is. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Verse 10. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. In other words, after laying out his argument for the real Jesus, John is simply stating that to believe in Jesus, to believe in the Son of God, is to accept God's testimony about Jesus. To accept and believe in Jesus is to hold tightly to what God has said about him through his word, through the prophets, through the apostles. Said another way, it's inconsistent to profess belief in God, as John's opponents did, and yet disbelief that God, what God has said concerning Jesus. So we can't say, oh, I, 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 I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. You can't say that. I can't tell you how many young, love-struck men and women over the years have come to me to tell me about their new boyfriend or girlfriend. Oh, he's a great guy, comes from a great family. He believes in God, but he doesn't really think Jesus was the Son of God. It's like you can't have both ways. To believe in God is to believe his testimony concerning Jesus. It goes together. So all of this sets us up for just the whole point of the text. Faith that overcomes Faith in God's testimony. Where does all this lead? What is all this for? And here's the thing we have to get. This is the only faith that gives life. This is the only faith that gives life. I'm going to say life with a capital L. The big life. Not the fleeting moments that happen when we're watching the sunset over the ocean. I'm talking life with a capital L. Eternal life, glorious life, abundant life. The question as to whether we will accept accept God's testimony is not an academic question. Our answer to this question about Jesus, it has eternal implications. Where will we spend eternity? Remember, our life isn't just this 84 years, 91 years that we live on this side of the grave. Our life is eternal. And what we do with Jesus, the Jesus that John is presenting, dictates where we spend eternity. God has given us eternal life through his Son, and whoever has the Son has eternal life. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son, verse 12. Whoever has the son, whoever has Jesus, has life. Whoever does not have Jesus, whoever does not have the son of God, does not have life. Combine that with 
verse 13, when John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so here's what John is chiefly concerned about today, right here, right now, in this moment. Here's what God is concerned about right here, right now, in this moment. He wants us to come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we would believe and accept the testimony of God given in his word, given by the Spirit through his prophets and apostles concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. He's the same Jesus John saw, heard, touched. And he's communicating to us today through his word preached. Our eternal destiny depends on what we do with this testimony concerning Jesus Christ. Not hyperbole, truth. When John wrote his gospel, he provided a purpose statement as to why he wrote the gospel of John. Chapter 20, verses 31 and 32. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written. John wrote his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is living? How do we find life? Verses 1 through 12 here in chapter 5 are often called a commentary on John's purpose statement in his gospel. He gives us a roadmap for what it means to find life in his name. Eternal life. So what is this life that John talks about? This isn't your best life now. This isn't a short-sighted life that's about gaining prosperity and health in the next few years. This is about an eternal perspective on life. It's about abundant life that Jesus talked about. It's about glorious life that awaits God's people. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, we begin to experience this abundant life in Jesus in part. But there's a day we experience it in full. This is the the new heavens and the new earth. This is what John saw in Revelation 21 when when a loud voice spoke when he was was brought up to heaven itself and and what John heard this voice say was that he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. And Jesus Christ himself says, Behold, I am making all things new. And that is our hope the more the world just, ugh, that the louder the background noise of life, like that generator, becomes in our life, the more we just yearn for a day when every tear is wiped and all things are new. Now, God is so gracious in that he gives us little droplets of redemption here. And now, you've probably seen it. This last weekend, I, I ended up flying to Montana to, to officiate the funeral of a cousin who passed away a couple weeks ago. My cousin was 49. We grew up together, me and his little brother and my sister. We grew up playing, spending our summers together. When I got word that my cousin died, it was heartbreaking. And that comes on the heels of so much loss. I've had a lot of conversations with you about that, but I've looked over the last seven and a half years in my family. It's just brutal. It's just absolutely brutal. We have suffered as a family, both my nuclear family and then my brothers and sisters and and a little bit of my extended family. We've experienced multiple suicides and devastating, tragic, premature death of our children. We've confronted the life and death struggles with illness and addiction in our family. We've walked through the horror and the life-altering damage of sexual assault recently. And my, my nephew, as you know, is currently in my sister is in Salt Lake City. He's been paralyzed from the chest down. It's just like, and then we bury two, and I bury two cousins this last weekend. One who died in December, who was 39, and my cousin who's 49, who died a couple weeks ago. Two young men died in the prime of their life. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I just, I sit in the middle of that and my heart just aches. 
I look out at the wet eyes and, and, and the, the heartbreak of my family. I, I was trying to preach the gospel and provide hope, and I think I did that, but the reality is it's just hard. We live in a, a, a broken and difficult world, and when we come to faith in Christ, he begins to, to, to give us that eternal perspective. This is where hope is found. We begin to loosen our death grip on possessions and on power and popularity and prestige. And God gives us these glimpses of, of what it's like. He, he, is, he is redeeming all things, that, that all things will be worked together for our good and his glory one day. He gives us moments where we can kind of almost believe that and we can taste that. I mean, my sister who's lost two children, I saw her minister to my aunt who buried her son this last weekend. And I saw my sister who has walked through the horrors of losing two kids sit with my aunt and with compassion and love and the spirit of God inside her minister to my aunt. And I'm watching that and I'm remembering the funeral of my niece and my nephew seven and two years ago. And I'm thinking, God, you're bringing redemption even now to the horrible death of my nephew and my niece. So we get to see glimpses of God's redeeming power at work. But don't you ever just close your eyes? Don't you ever just close your eyes and say, God, what will it be like when you make all things new? I mean, not, not a droplet of redemption on my parched tongue, but gallons, oceans of, of redemption that, that has no end. Not, not a glimmer of hope, but hope, eternal hope, hope uh, that, that extends as far as the eye can see in all directions. Can you imagine that? I imagine restoration complete. What will that day be like? I think of my niece and my nephew who passed away and, uh, and my, my niece, when she died, we donated her lungs. And when my nephew, he died, he had a disease sort of like Luke Gehrig's where he couldn't breathe. And his life was very difficult the last few years of his life. He really fought for every breath. And when that, that worship song comes on that talks about how every breath in our lungs will, will sing praises to you, when that song comes on, God just prompts in my heart to close my eyes and I imagine my niece and my nephew fully restored with lungs filled with, with air for, to sing praises to God, with joy in their faces, singing praises to God. I imagine joining them with a chorus of the saints for all of eternity. I imagine what redemption complete will look like, what restoration eternal will look like. When's the last time you thought deeply about life eternal? When's the last time you really let yourself imagine what it means that we live eternally, what it means that Jesus has overcome death, that we might have life? There's an author and a speaker named Sam Storms who I appreciate. I heard him give a talk 20 years ago on heaven. I'm going to lift a little bit of his talk on heaven. Would you just for a second, just humor me, would you close your eyes and imagine with me life eternal? On that day, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, there'll be nothing that is abrasive or irritating or agitating or hurtful. Nothing harmful or hateful or upsetting or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh impatient, nothing ungrateful or unworthy or weak or sick or broken or foolish. When we stand in the presence of Jesus and all things are made new, there will be nothing deformed or degenerate or depraved or disgusting, nothing polluted, pathetic, poor or putrid, nothing dark or dismal or dismaying or degrading, nothing blameworthy or blemished or blasphemous or blighted. On that day, when every tear is wiped, There'll be nothing grotesque or grievous or hideous or insidious, nothing illicit, illegal, or lustful, nothing marred or mutilated or misaligned or misinformed, nothing nasty or naughty or offensive or odious, nothing rancid or rude or spoiled or soiled. There'll be nothing tawdry or tainted or tasteless or tempting, nothing vile, nothing vicious, nothing wasteful, nothing wanting, none of it. Instead, on that day, as we stand on the precipice of eternity, 
as hope stretches in every direction, as joy stretches in every direction, as light stretches in every direction, as, as restoration and redemption are full and complete everywhere we look, we will only experience glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We'll see only and all that is adorable and affectionate and beautiful and bright and brilliant and bountiful and delightful and delicious, that which is delectable and dazzling and elegant and exciting. We'll see only that which is fascinating and fruitful and glorious and grand and gracious and good and happy and holy and healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant and lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent. Splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. We'll look to the left and we'll look to the right and we'll say to one another, do you know what this is? This is living. This is living. You can open your eyes. That's what's at stake here. That's what Jesus has purchased for us. John does not want his audience to miss it, but more importantly, God does not want you to miss this. Jesus came. He bore your sin. He willingly went to the cross. He shed his blood. He became sin that you might know the righteousness of God, that you might experience forgiveness, that you might have the hope of eternal glory that awaits all who are in the family of God, that you might become an overcomer. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for this text. God, I'm so thankful for the hope of eternal life. God, and I confess first that I have, in the course of my Christian life, I have been fickle with that phrase. God, I confess that I have not paused enough to to focus my gaze heavenward, to imagine what it's going to be the day I stand in your presence and there will be nothing but joy, nothing but life, nothing but life, nothing but beauty. God, would you just, would you give us hearts that, that turn heavenward, God? God, would you enable us as your people today in this place, God, would you enable us to to deeply root our our faith in the overcomer? God, give us a faith that overcomes, that is rooted in the overcoming work of Jesus. God, help us to trust and believe in the testimony that you have given us through your word by the power of your spirit concerning Jesus, God. May we hold on to the real Jesus, God. Guard us against false teachings that may want to lead us astray in God. Help us hold tightly to this faith that gives life. Jesus, you came to give us life and life eternal. God, may we live in such a way that reflects that life to the world around us, that lives in joyful, worshipful response to the work you have done for us. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.